Listen, I think we could go home full. But y'all know better than that. We still get in the word. <clears throat> You're not getting out that early or off that easy. But I pray that your heart is stirred, your affections uh, awaken, even for Christ and his word, even as we come to Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, and consider, uh, continue our series in the book of Exodus, and specifically, we've been taking uh, week by week to go through the Ten Commandments and consider what God's Word has to say for us. So let me pray one more time as we get ready for His Word. Father, You are indeed victorious and glorious. And these testimonies have stirred our affections and reminded us of the gospel. They have preached the gospel to our eyes. That enemies of God become friends of God through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God. And that the Spirit of God indwells your people so we know we can cry out, Abba, Father. And so we even pray now, Father, as we approach your word. Help us approach your word with submissive hearts. God, you know my burdens. You know the weightiness of this topic. But the good news of the gospel, even as we've heard today, applied to this topic. And so I pray by your spirit, help us. Speak to us. We're listening. In Jesus' name and for his sake, we say amen. God is gracious and faithful. He's gracious and faithful to save and transform, even as we've seen in our study of Exodus, that he gathered and rescued his people out of slavery, out of bondage, and rescued them to new life, to walk with him in this new life. And even so in Christ, in the new covenant, he has rescued us from the bondage of our sin and rescued us to walk in new life in Christ, even as we've heard testified to today. And today we come to the seventh commandment. Usually I read uh, the testimonies of everybody before they share. I feel like I'm a little loud, so if you turn me down just a little bit, I'm going to get excited, and I don't want to hurt anybody's ears. Usually I read the testimonies and get the details of the testimonies. Now, other pastors did this time, and so I didn't get to hear them, so I didn't know the stories we're going to hear this morning, but how relevant and how glorious the Spirit is when He unites what He's doing in a service, even like this, in a testimony to His Word. Today we come to the seventh commandment, Exodus 20, 14, you shall not commit adultery. Now, I need to confess to you, sermons like today are hard sermons to prepare and preach. In preaching, you're always asking and praying to God and asking for the Holy Spirit's help to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted, all in the same sermon at the same time. And in our cultural moment, talking about the biblical ethics of marriage and sexuality is perhaps the topic that most needs comfort for the afflicted and affliction for the comfortable. Some people in this room need to be encouraged and comforted with the healing and or forgiveness found only in Christ. Some of you need to be warned and rebuked for thinking so little of the seriousness of sexual sin. Part of the difficulty with a sermon like this is also that I know that little hearts are listening. And I know that mature hearts are listening. I know that hard hearts are resisting. The tender hearts are listening. And broken hearts are hurting. Now, having acknowledged the difficulty of this task, I also want to say I'm not looking for you to feel sorry for me. It's a great privilege to proclaim God's word, even in a word like this. It's a great honor and privilege. So I'm not asking you to feel sorry for me. I do want you to understand and think through the, what we're trying to do and what we're going to be talking about and the sensitivity of the moment so that you're hearing and listening and applying God's word correctly. But we desperately need sermons on the seventh commandment to inform our sexual ethic in the current moment and indeed all uh, cultural moments because God is good 
And his teaching on marriage and adultery and human sexuality is good and leads to human flourishing. To avoid what God's word says about these kinds of things is to avoid what is best. The louder the world screams at us about human sexuality, the more we need to hear from God, not the less. We cannot let our children in the next generation go undiscipled in this category. For God is not a bucket of holy water to be thrown in the fire of pleasure. Instead, he's the source of all true and lasting pleasure and joy. Now, you might be confused already because you're like, wait a minute, I thought this was a sermon on the, the seventh commandment, which was about taking or committing adultery. But if you've been with us as we've studied through the Ten Commandments, we've learned through our study when Jesus explains the law, these commands apply far broader and deeper than we might first think. So non-Christian friend who might be with us today, I just want to address you before we get into this. We're glad you're here. Genuinely, we're happy that you're here. And we are aware that you might find much of what I say today offensive. I would just kindly ask you, please stick with us. We really believe that we are all guilty of sin and deserving of God's judgment, but that God's grace and mercy is able to cleanse and transform even the worst sinners among us. We want you to hear and wrestle with the claims of Christ. Even if at first you reject some of the ethical beliefs on the front end, we encourage you to be courageous enough to consider Christ. If you come to believe that he is who he says he is and that he did what the scriptures say he did, then perhaps by his grace you will see the goodness of his ethics. Main point this morning, adultery, and by implication, all sexual sin, is forbidden because it violates the marriage covenant and our covenant relationship with God. Again, adultery, and by implication, all sexual sin, is forbidden because it violates the marriage covenant and our covenant relationship with God. First, we've got to talk about marriage. Before we can even approach and understand adultery, we've got to talk about marriage and God's design for marriage. Marriage first is a covenant that pictures God's covenant relationship with his people. So marriage is a covenant that pictures God's covenant relationship with his people. Do you know the Bible opens with a wedding and also closes with a wedding? The first wedding, Adam and Eve. Adam, when he's naming all the creatures, God uses and parades these animals before him to let him name them so that he might notice something's missing. We pick up in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. While he slept, he took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. From the opening pages of scripture, we see God the father walk the first bride, Eve, to the first groom, Adam. And the two become one. God designed man and woman both equally in his image, but complementary by design. Complementary different, uh, complementarily different by design. So this marital union by biological design joined together as one would produce new life. Their purpose was given in Genesis 1.28 to be fruitful, multiply, to fill the earth with other image bearers. Marriage was the two becoming one in order that there might be more. 
Marriage is not merely about reproduction, but it is divinely designed for reproduction, even if the fall sometimes makes our broken bodies not work the way they ought to work. But I just want you to make some basic observations. Man could not produce a child without the woman, nor the woman without the man. The two had to become one for the earth to be filled with image bearers of God. The complementarity was by design. And we see that God by design instituted from the very beginning marriage to be between one man and one woman for life. And this was the context designed for reproduction and as we'll see even for all sexual intimacy. The one woman, one man, lifelong union is a design of God. And study after study after study has proven throughout human history this is the bedrock of the flourishing, uh, every flourishing society and family. However, I want to make clear Human marriage is not the end goal of human life. Those who are single among us are not lesser human beings who do not fulfill their purpose. Human marriage itself, though a creation ordinance to be held in honor by all, Hebrews 13, 4, is not ultimate. It's a pointer. It's a picture of an even greater covenant between God and his people. We see this in the old covenant between God and Israel. We see this in the new covenant between Christ and the church. First, God and Israel... This covenant, even on Sinai, at this moment, as God is revealing his law, there's a covenant happening where he's forming, he's chosen a people, he's chosen a bride for himself, and this is the covenant ceremony, even that we are studying now. We see God refer to Israel as his bride, Isaiah 62, 5. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you, and the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall God rejoice over you. Or Isaiah 54, 5. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. God also uses marriage language when talking about Israel's infidelity, that is when Israel's unfaithful and worships false gods. We read in Jeremiah even the promise of the new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband declares the Lord now not only in the Old Testament but also in the new Jesus the son of God is presented as the bridegroom and the church made up of people from every tribe tongue and nation as the bride of Christ even John the Baptist in the opening pages of the New Testament makes real clear when people are getting confused about who he is he lets people no 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 I'm like the best man <laughs> Jesus is the groom he's the bridegroom not me John 3 28 John says this, you, John the Baptist, you yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So John the Baptist from the get goes like, no, Christ is the bridegroom. This marriage is happening, and it's Christ the bridegroom, and the church is the bride. So marriage, we see is a true covenant that pictures and points to the ultimate covenant between a faithful God and his people. Now there's much more we could say about marriage, but primarily what I want you to see this morning is that marriage is a picture of God's faithfulness to his covenant people through the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And this is what Paul picks up and why Paul talks about the distinct roles in marriage to say these roles in marriage are pointing to something else, namely the greater covenant. Ephesians 5. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their hus- in everything to their husbands. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore, quoting from Genesis 2, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And what's the point, Paul? This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The Bible begins with marriage. God's covenant relationship with Israel and Jesus' covenant relationship with the church uses marriage language. And then the Bible ends with a marriage celebration, a wedding, the wedding feast of the Lamb, when Christ himself receives his bride, the church. We'll talk more about that marriage at the end of our message. But for now, we just hear from John in that great message in Revelation and, uh, that he received from the Lord, Revelation 21, verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Marriage is a true covenant that illustrates and points to the ultimate covenant between our faithful God and his chosen people. Marriage is a pointer and a picture a picturing pointer or pointing picture. That's the ultimate purpose of marriage. Secondly, therefore, adultery. Adultery is forbidden because it defaces marriage. So once we understand what marriage is and why God designed marriage the way he designed marriage, then we can understand why the seventh commandment exists because adultery defaces the picture of marriage that marriage is supposed to point others to. Now, this week, I'm not going to spend as much time surveying and showing you all the ins and outs of what's, what the command forbids, but I just want to give a quick summary of what the Old Covenant is clearly forbidding, and then how Jesus deepened and expands the prohibition as we've done week in and week out through this study. Old Testament law, very simply, the seventh commandment forbids going outside of the marriage covenant for sexual intimacy. This is what's forbidden in the seventh commandment, going outside of the marriage covenant for sexual intimacy. Adultery in the Old Testament was something that made one unclean, Leviticus 18.20. And the civil penalty, just like it was even for murder or for anger, or Jesus uh, showed us anger, um, uh, murder was anger in the heart first. But murder, the civil penalty, penalty was the death penalty, so too with adultery, Deuteronomy 22.22. 22. But not merely are we talking about infidelity in a physical marriage, but regularly throughout the scriptures, again, Israel's idolatry was referred to as infidelity. They were, they were committing adultery against their covenant relationship with God by worshiping false gods of other lands and by intermarrying with these, in, uh, these lands that worship these false gods. So there was in, uh, infidelity and idolatry mixed together. Passages like Leviticus 20, Numbers 15, Deuteronomy 31, Judges 2 and 8, Ezekiel 16, Hosea 2, all use the language of adultery to describe Israel's participation in idolatrous worship of pagan gods. And they're intermarrying with pagan peoples that worship those false gods. So again, if marriage pictured and pointed to God's covenant relationship with his people, adultery pictured and pointed to Israel's infidelity through idolatry. And then Jesus takes it to the heart like he always does. Because again, at this moment, we can all be sitting here like, well, I have, I'm not either. You might be single saying, I'm not married, so I'm good. I'm not even worried about this sermon. <laughs> Or you might be married and think, I've never had, a, had an affair. I've never committed adultery, so I'm good. But the Lord Jesus shows up and takes it to the heart. As we've watched him do time and time again with the Ten Commandments, he reveals the true understanding and exposition of the law. It's not merely to external conformity, 
This is not only prohibiting spouses from external infidelity with other spouses, but it's an issue of the heart that implicates all of us. Jesus in Matthew 5, right after he talks about anger being the seed of murder in the heart, then he goes to lust. Matthew 5, 27. You heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye calls you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand calls you sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. So Jesus, just like he taught us last week that anger was murder in the heart, so now he shows us that lust is in the heart is adultery in the heart. Every single adulterous affair began with lust in the heart. Now, I want to take a minute and just talk about what lust is not, and then let's talk about what lust is. But to be clear, what lust is not, noticing someone is attractive is not lust. So God created human beings to be beautiful. He also made us with romantic desire in order to draw man and woman into the covenant of marriage to the union that reproduces beautiful image bearers. So desire for romantic intimacy is not wrong. That's not lust. In fact, it is right. It is a part of God's good design and the accompanying pleasure of romance, friendship, and fellowship in the oneness of marriage is a good design uh, by God that you ought to and it is good to desire. So noticing beauty or desiring intimacy is not lust. So what is lust? Lust is a desire for that which God forbids. Lust is when noticing beauty or desiring intimacy turns to imagining and feeding that which God has forbidden or not yet given. And here's the problem with lust is it lies to us. Lust says what God forbids is more desirable than who God is. Lust says what my flesh wants is more important than what God wants. Therefore, Jesus expounds the seventh commandment to forbid anything that God has expressly forbidden or not yet given. And so just practically, this means bestiality, so animals, incest, polygamy, and pornography is forbidden by the seventh commandment. In today's world, pornographic literature, internet pornography, songs loaded with lyrical pornography, and all other pornographic entertainment is a violation of the seventh commandment because all of it is feeding adulterous lust in the heart. And just like if you nurture the seed of anger, it can grow into murder, so too the seed of lust, when watered and fed with pornographic material and thoughts, wants to bloom into literal and spiritual idolatrous adultery. Now it's fair then to ask the question, why is all of this forbidden by God? So if Jesus takes it to the heart and says all of this is forbidden by God, why? Three very clear reasons we find in Scripture. Number one, adultery is forbidden uh, forbidden because it undermines the purpose of marriage. So that's the reason I spent the whole point doing what I did with the first point. Adultery undermines the whole point of marriage. If marriage is to be a picture and pointer to the covenant relationship between our faithful God and his people, adultery defaces the picture and points people to a different story about God. Marriage is to be a beautiful picture of God and his beloved. Adultery is a pornographic picture of idolatry, false worship of a false God. Adultery defames his glory by lying about the goodness of covenant relationship with God. So that's the first reason it's forbidden. Second reason it's forbidden. Adultery is forbidden because it's unloving to others. So it defames the glory of God, but it's also unloving to others. Obviously, it's unloving to the spouse that the one covenanted to. 
Adultery violates the marriage covenant, so we stand and make vows at our weddings. Adultery says, I don't care about any of those vows. I'm taking them all back. I lied about all of them. Now, if you're single now but married later, also notice then today's sin is also against your future spouse. But this sin is not only unloving to the spouse. Violating the seventh commandment is massively unloving to children. Children who are supposed to learn from the love commitments of their parents to one another and through the marriage union what it looks like to have commitments and to know love. And not only the spouse and children. It's unloving to neighbors and friendships. Listen, if we believe the commonly cited excuse for those who claim to be Christians and yet commit adultery, I know God wants me to be happy. We conveniently and narcissistically ignore the fact that adultery makes so, other, so many other people unhappy. So in your, he wants me to be happy, you're destroying so many other lives, conveniently. It ruins friendships, familial relationships, often leaves lasting wounds in children and the innocent spouse. Adultery hurts churches, leads to gossip, leads to fear and confusion, leads people to feeling guilty like they should have done something to prevent it. Moeller says adultery begins a breakdown of order that creates, that threatens the entire society. For how can we trust each other if we cannot trust each other in our most intimate commitments? A culture that embraces adultery accepts within itself a poison pill for every other relationship, a toxic substance that threatens every other commitment. All sexual sin injures others. Even pornography reduces beautiful image bearers to less than animal-like worth. And pornography is full of lies. The people you're viewing when you look at pornography do not want you. They don't know you exist. And often, pornography is funding and fueling sex trafficking off your dollar and your time and your clicks. So again, it's full of lies. Adultery is forbidden because it's unloving to so many other people. Now just for a second, pastorally, let me address the spouse maybe who's been hurt by a spouse committing adultery or maybe addicted to pornography, looking at pornography. Let me address those who have experienced the heartbreak of watching your parents' marriage destroyed because of adultery. Let me address those who are hurt because friendships have been lost because of sexual sin and say to all of you, Jesus offers healing and restoration to broken hearts. We will see in our next point, he loves you, he is with you, he will never leave nor forsake you, and he can heal the deepest of wounds. So adultery, again, defames the glory of God. It's unloving to others, so it undermines the purpose of marriage. It's unloving to others, but lastly and ironically, it's ultimately unsatisfying to the guilty party. This is a painful irony. Lust lies to the guilty party. Lust desires that which is forbidden, but as soon as lust gets the object of its lust, lust wants something else. Lust is not like, let me have, and once I get, then I'm satisfied. Lust is, let me have, once I get, then I'm not satisfied that, and I want something else. Lust never satisfies. Lust doesn't surrender when you feed it. It grows, and it's destructive. And let me just tell you, I've been in ministry for a long time. I've had conversations with a lot of people, in public and in private. And I can just tell you, promiscuity, insecurity, and emptiness go hand in hand. Those who are the most promiscuous and feed their lusts the most are the people the most miserable and those who have a longing in their heart that sex does not satisfy. I've had conversations with people who other people consider celebrities telling me how broken and empty they were, yet they had an unlimited supply of whatever they wanted. Lust lies to us. Young people, do not listen to your friends who brag on their sinful lifestyles. 
If in the end, or in the end, if not already, they'll be full of regrets and unsatisfied longings. Lust is kind of like that scene on Little Nemo where the anglerfish with the bioluminescent light seduces Nemo and Dory closer. Right? They get closer and they're kind of seduced and lured to sleep. And they're talking about how the good feeling they have until suddenly see the teeth of the, fi- the fish. And Nemo says, good feeling gone. <laughs> this is lust. Seduce you, lure you. Lots of good feelings for a moment. And then the teeth of lust will destroy you and lead you to death. So lust undermines the purpose of marriage. Lust is unloving to everyone around it. And lust itself is unsatisfying to the one who commits it. The lies of lust are like that bioluminescent light. Seductive now, but eventually you'll see the teeth and the good feeling will be gone. Proverbs 6, uh, 32 makes it clear. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor and his disgrace will not be wiped away. So sexual sin means not only to destroy others, but the person who commits the sin. Sin leads to death. Adultery, and specifically sexual sin, uh, defaces God's design for marriage. Unloving to everyone around you and is destructive to yourself. So we need some hope. We need help. Thirdly, Jesus upholds the faithfulness of God and cleans his bride. Jesus upholds the faithfulness of God and cleans his bride. God's design for sexual intimacy in the marriage union of one woman and one man until death is a beautiful picture of God's covenant relationship with his people. Adultery defaces this picture of this greater covenant and destroys others, which is why Satan loves to attack marriage so often. And so with brokenness coming from sexual sin, how does the Lord Jesus relate to those who are guilty of lust, of adultery? If you're in the room right now and feel unclean, guilty, and full of shame, how might Jesus interact with you if he was here in the flesh? What happens when Jesus encounters sexual sinners with a filthy past? In Luke chapter 7, we see Jesus having dinner with one of the Pharisees who were the most religious, self-righteous, and judgmental of sinners. And then a prostitute interrupts. Let's look at what Jesus does. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed him with the ointment. Now when the Pharisees who invited him saw this, he said to himself, if, notice he said to himself, I love the Lord Jesus in these, like somebody said to themselves moments, and then Jesus responds, love these moments. If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who was touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering him. Like, I know you were talking to yourself, but I was listening. (laughs) And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. He said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. She's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. She loved much, but he's forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, and imagine this moment. 
your sins are forgiven. And those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This prostitute shows up to Jesus. She would have been terrified of Pharisees prior. The ridicule and judgment would have been too much for her to face. She was known by her sin, identified by her sin. She was a woman of the city. Sexual sin attacks our identity like no other. But she boldly busted up into this dinner party with no fear of these men. Why? Because she had met Jesus. She had gone from being a shameful sinner, but she had received the forgiveness of God in Christ and was transformed into a shameless servant of the living God. Her sins were many, but she was forgiven much. She loved much. Friends, there's a direct correlation between our affection for Christ and our understanding of how much we've been forgiven. Jesus has huge grace and huge forgiveness for huge sinners. He can transform shameful sexual sinners into a shameless servant of the Savior. Did we not hear it in the testimony this morning? This is exactly what Jesus came to do for his bride, the church, which is made up of all who would bring their shameful sin to Christ. So not only just this one prostitute will he forgive and set free like that, re-identify, rename her, and send her in peace. He does that for his entire bride, the church. This woman's shameful sin had to be paid for. My shameful sin had to be paid for. Your shameful sin had to be paid for. Jesus' death cleanses his bride and gets her ready for the wedding day. Again, Ephesians 5. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. How? What's the example? What's the model? What's the call? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, dying on the cross. Why did he do that? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus lived the perfectly faithful life. He never cheated on his bride, the church. He never had a lustful thought. He was tempted as we are yet without sin. And yet he gave himself up to death on the cross that our sexual sin, indeed all of our sin, could be paid for in full so that we could be cleansed and washed clean so that we might sing. There was a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath the flood lose all their guilty stains. He kept both sides of the covenant, his and ours. And he did so that in order that all who repent and trust in his love and in this gospel might be his covenant people, his bride, the church. He washed us so that he might present us to himself on that great wedding day. Again, Revelation 21, verse 2. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They'll be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. That's oneness language. That's marriage language. That's the two becoming one language. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Tears from the shame and guilt of sexual sin. Tears from the wounds of other sexual sin against you. Tears from broken spouses and families and relationships. He'll wipe away all those tears and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Notice, as he says this, everyone there is there by grace, not because they did any good work to earn being there. Notice what he says. He said to me, It is done. 
I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he'll be my son. But to those who refuse his grace, who approach him on their own merit, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The contrast continues. Look at verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels with the seven bowls full of the seven plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. 10 to 26 is a breathtaking description of the beauty of the Lamb, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth. But you have to be clean to enter. Look down at verse 27. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. But again, notice being clean comes free. Revelation 22, verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so they may have the right to the tree of life that they may enter the city by the gates. Wash the robes of what? The water of life, the blood of the Lamb. Verse 15, though, again, the contrast. Outside of the dogs and the sexually immoral, and the murderers, and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So blessed are those who are washed, who aren't on the outside. And then verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about the things for the churches. I'm the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So the spirit and who? The bride. Say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who's thirsty come. Let the one who desires take of the water of life without Christ. Grace. Clean by grace. Some of you hear him calling right now. You need to come. Trust in his cleansing work and his satisfying life to be the life that you long for. Some of you need to believe he can cleanse and satisfy. Turn from your sin. Turn from your self-righteous works into Christ alone to make you clean. Come and be washed by the blood and satisfied by the living water and join the bride of Christ. Through faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, you can be made clean and you can be ready for the wedding day of the Lamb. Some of you already are, but need to believe that you are. Some of you just need to believe you're washed clean. If you're in Christ, you're clean. You are spotless. You're no longer defined by your filth. Stop carrying it like he's just waiting to bring it back on you and punish you for it. It's been punished at Calvary. You're clean. This is gospel. We have to understand you're right about 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. You're right. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You're right to believe that. But keep going. Believe verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You are free. Believe that this morning. Believe that this morning. And live differently because of it. All of this is true. So Christians, we live differently now. You're no longer a slave to your sexual desires or sexual sin. Your body no longer belongs to you. You were bought with a price, the very blood of the Lamb. We as the church are engaged and our wedding day is coming. And so to my single brothers and sisters, especially those long to be married, 
I pray if the Lord wills to grant you a temporary marriage you long for. But I promise you, the marriage you long for, the marriage on that day is coming. And if you're in Christ, you're there. Your wedding day is happening and you can bank your life on it. Therefore, to everyone, married and unmarried, if you're in Christ, flee from sexual sin. It's very simple at this point now. You're clean. Live clean. (laughs) You've been set free. Live free. It's all by grace. You earn nothing. And your eternity is not at stake. Christ did it all. Therefore, Paul says, he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him, united. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So Christian, you never have to lay your head on a pillow one more night full of guilt and shame for taking another click on pornography. You're free. Don't look anymore. You're free. You've been set free. Live free. You're not a slave. Sexual sin does not own you. You do not have to hook up. You do not have to go where you've been going. Lust is lying and you don't have to keep listening. Let us eliminate celebrating sexual sin. Let us look away instead of looking lustfully. Let us abstain from sexual morality. First Thessalonians, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual morality. That each one of you know how to control his own body and holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger of all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man but God who gives the Holy Spirit to you. Let me shout out to a group of A&T students led by guess who? Jayla. Who started abstinent adolescence at, NT, at North Carolina a t What a bold countercultural act of love for God and neighbor. Like, that, like why? Because they've been set free. Been washed clean. So I can live differently now and invite other people. Come, come be clean. Come get the cleansing blood of Christ and be made new. Marriage is a beautiful picture of God's covenant relationship with his church. Adultery is an ugly defacing of this picture. Jesus redeems sexual sinners like us and restores us to right relationship. Makes us bold like our sister in Luke chapter 7. Bold, shameless servants of Christ. Like Jayla, like Jack even from their testimony this morning. So let's live differently. Let us live with his blessing and joy on our marriages, on our singleness, and with all of our sexual desires. For the blood of his son cleanses and qualifies his bride and his resurrection guarantees the wedding day is coming. Like the roar of many waters, like the sound of rolling thunder, hallelujah, give him glory for the marriage of the lamb is coming. Let's close in prayer. Father.